Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxis. Well, for those of you who are new, my name is Kurt. I'm one of the pastors here at Crosswinds. And I'd like to welcome you to week two of our series in Genesis. Now, if you missed last week, that's not really too big of a deal because we didn't get that far. I mean, honestly, we only got the introduction and one verse done, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, but today, we're going to definitely pick up the pace. We're going to try and cover the rest of Genesis chapter 1 and finish the whole creation story. So all I can say is you better buckle up and hold on tight because what it took God a week to do, we're going to try and redo in 40 minutes. So a lot of ground to cover. Take your notes out and get ready. Uh, by way of introduction, I need to review some of the key things we looked at last week because they're very important as foundational information as we get into um, this morning. Whenever we talk about uh, creation and we talk about origins, the first thing that comes up is the creation versus evolution debate or, or controversy. And as you know, the scientific world is completely committed to evolution and that we have evolved just enough time and just enough chance. And evolution is considered a fact. The problem is evolution is not a fact. Evolution is a theory. Facts are things that you can repeat in the laboratory. Trust me, they have never been able to repeat the creation in the laboratory. So all they can do is guess at what might have happened. So when you understand this debate back and forth, they're guessing, we're looking at the Scriptures. This is the difference between the two. Now, many well-meaning Christians, because evolution is so deeply entrenched in our society, have tried to find a compromise between creation and evolution. And there's a number of compromises out there, and we looked at two of them last week, and I want to review these. One of the compromises that you often hear is something called theistic evolution, or sometimes it's called the day-age theory. And what they do is they say, we're going to marry evolution on one side with creation on the other side. Creation took six days, so maybe what happened is the days were not literal 24-hour days. Maybe the days represent long periods of time, like long evolutionary cycles. We put these two together, and what we have is each day is several millions of years, and things develop along the way, and God inserts himself along the way and sort of inserts transitional species and fossils. Sounds appealing, and a lot of Christians believe this, but there are some real problems with this. There's a theological problem, and there's a logical problem. The theological problem, we covered this last week, if you have... Uh, species and animals that are going along for billions of years, living and dying, living and dying, and then all at the end you have Adam and Eve, remember this last week, all of a sudden coming and they're a perfect world? Well, doesn't that mean you've had death in the world for billions of years before you had sin in the world? Because biblically, we know that death doesn't enter the world until Adam and Eve sin, and when they sin, then death enters the world. 
So this compromise of the day-age theory or the theistic evolution doesn't work because you can't have death in the world before sin's in the world. There's a logical problem with it as well because if you think about it, on day three, you have the creation of plants. But it's not until day five that you have the creation of birds. Day six, you have the creation of insects. Now, any gardener knows this. There's a symbiotic relationship between the plants and the birds and the insects. Like, don't bees pollinate flowers? <laughs> what happens if you don't have insects and birds for billions or millions of years? How does this whole pollination process work? It, it doesn't. So the, this idea of this gap theory just falls apart. Another one that was, it's popular with this compromise, it's called this, the problem of the, uh, excuse me, the gap theory. I meant to say day-age theory a moment ago. The gap theory became very popular because it was inserted in the study notes of the Schofield Reference Bible. And the gap theory believes that between Genesis 1-1, which is the creation of heaven and earth, and Genesis 1-2, which is sort of the, the whole gen the creation in six days, there is this huge gap that is not documented in Scripture of millions or billions of years in which you insert all the geological ages. So you have science happy on one side which, for a long, old earth, and you have the theologians happy on the other side because you have six creation days when it's all done. The problem is the same fatal flaw. You would have billions of years of death in the world, plants and animals dying long before you had sin in the world. So the, the gap theory fails. In essence, what happens is all these attempts to compromise creation and evolution and bring them together, nothing works. You either have evolution or you have God created and He created in six literal days. So those are the two real options you have. And that's where we left last week. Now let me just spend a few minutes looking at evolution. What's the problem with just saying time and chance produce evolution and produce life and intelligent things. Well, let me give you an example here. I forgot to bring them with me, but let's say I had 10 pennies. I number the pennies 1 through 10, and I put them in my pocket. What's the chance that when I pull out a penny from my pocket, I pull out the number 1? 1 in. All right, good. Put them back in my pocket. What's the chance that the next one I pull out is 1 in? Is number, uh, it's one in 100. Now, what would be the chances if I continue to do this? And I pulled out a completely ordered set, one through 10. One in 10 billion. So there's a one in 10 billion chance that I pulled out a random ordered set of pennies numbered one through 10 out of my pocket. So not likely I'm going to pull them out randomly in the right order. Well, why don't we take something that is a little bit more complex, like human DNA. Human DNA is an ordered set of 3,000 million nucleotides. That's a long ordered set. Now, 
just to give you an idea, if you were to take the DNA out of one human cell I was reading this week, and you were to stretch it out end to end, it would be five feet long and 50 trillionths of an inch thick. That is a long ordered set. True? Has to be in the, that's for one cell. What is the chance happening of the DNA of one cell coming together randomly in the right order? What do you think? Uh, that's probably a good answer because I have no idea. <laughs> the point is that it is beyond reason. In a sermon I gave a couple of years ago, you can find it on one of my websites called Reasons to Believe Your Bible. I did a message called Scientific Reasons to Believe Your Bible. And I talked about if you took all of the matter in the universe with all the known time in a long age earth theory, and you look at the random, the, the amount of chance necessary, you don't have enough matter and enough time, even at the longest and the, the biggest guesstimations of the universe, to have the random chance occurrence of one, the DNA of one living organism. It's just impossible to have chance produce this entire world. So if evolution doesn't work, the compromises don't work, you're left with one thing. This entire universe is a special creation of God. And the Bible tells us He did it in six literal days. So let's go ahead and look at what it says in Genesis 1 about how He did it. And before we jump in, you need to know that Genesis 1 is ordered in a very unique way. The first three days talk about God forming the earth. The next three days talk about God filling the earth. Like on day one, it talks about God forming light and darkness. But in day four, it corresponds with it. He fills the sky with sun, moon, and stars. Which are day two is going to talk about forming the waters above and the waters below. But day five corresponds with it, where he fills the waters below with fish, and the air above with birds. Day three is going to talk about him forming dry land out of the seas. But on day six, he fills the dry land with animals and with man. So the first three days are about God forming the earth. The next three days are about God filling the earth. And there's a lot to cover, so let's jump right in. Number one, day one. Forming light and darkness. It says the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Well, it says the earth was formless and void. We know what void means. Void means empty, so there's nothing on the surface of the earth. But yet it says the earth was formless. Now, what does it mean to have the earth be formless? Because the earth, would, we would think, would have a form. It would be round, right? It sort of looks like that. But there's some interesting things. 
If you ever have a chance uh, in your life groups this week, go to Proverbs chapter 8. Read Proverbs chapter 8 because you'll see that the whole creation story we're studying today is recounted in Proverbs chapter 8, but it's recounted from the vantage point of wisdom. Now, what is wisdom? Many theologians think that it is Jesus Christ, before He was incarnated, talking about Him working with the Father in the creation story. And there's a very interesting little bit of details uh, that comes out in Proverbs chapter 8 that is not seen exactly in Genesis chapter 1. Let me show you this. It says, when he established the heavens, I was there, speaking about Jesus. And when he drew a circle on the face of the deep. The word for deep in Proverbs chapter 8 is the same word for deep we just read in Genesis chapter 1. There was a time when God drew a circle on the face of the earth, when God established gravity. Isn't this pretty cool? God made it round. Now, one of the first things we find after He makes it round is He creates light. There's a lot of fussing that often goes on with people saying, light? How could God create light? It's not until day four that we get the sun and the moon and the stars. So where does this light come from? This can't be a literal recounting of how it was done, but why not? Do you need the sun to have light? We're not using the sun. We have lots of light. In fact, the Bible says that God Himself is light. Look what it says here. He who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light. God is the source of light. You remember Israel when they left Egypt and they were in the prom they were wandering on their way to the promised land. They followed a uh, the cloud that was above the tabernacle by day and what was it by light by night? Pillar of fire. A pillar of fire puts off a lot of light, doesn't it? Now, where was the kindling? There was none. It, but it put off light. God is totally capable of creating light before He creates the sun. And to say He can't do that is to sort of end up bowing to the idea of evolution, where God says, no, this is all about special creation. And to make sure we know this all took place in one day, how does He end this? And there was evening and there was morning on the first day, a literal 24-hour day. Day two, forming the waters above and, the, and below. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. So what we have here is God, He's formed light, He's created the, uh, the planet into a sphere, and then He creates an atmosphere, it says. Uh, there's a vapor canopy, like there's water below, 
and there's water above. The whole earth is like a water ball at this point. Interestingly, uh, this is not necessarily something I know exactly if it's true or not, but many people think that this vapor canopy that existed over the earth was much thicker then than it is now. If you ever been on a plane, you know how you all of a sudden go up higher and higher and you get to the clouds, the vapor canopy, and you actually can go above the, the clouds? The idea, they say, is this vapor canopy may have been thicker because if you notice, before the flood, people lived like ultra-long lifespans. They say, well, why did they live this long? Possibly because all the UV light and all these things were filtered out. I don't know if that's true or not, but we do know this. Genesis chapter 2, verse 5 tells us it didn't rain until the flood. Genesis chapter 7, 11 through 12 tells us that when the flood came, that God opened the very windows of heaven. So water came from above and below. And at this end of this day, we have the same phrase. There is evening and there was morning on the second day. To emphasize, this took place in a literal 24-hour days. Move on to day three. Now we have the forming of dry land and the seas. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, Plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. Now, many people look at this and they say, Well, this isn't possible. God separated the earth and the seas together and then you had plants on the same day, well, it would have taken months, maybe years, for all this wet earth that was underneath the seas to dry out. Well, that's true, except for the fact we're dealing with God's special creation, right? God is doing things in a miraculous way, not a normal way. Like, for instance... Um, Let's go back to when Jesus fed the 5,000 in the New Testament. He took a little boy's lunch, right? A couple of fish and some loaves, and yet he fed everybody with it. Now, Jesus didn't need to take the time to, the, to say, oh, I need more fish. I guess I have to uh, go raise fish. I guess I have to go feed fish. I guess I have to wait for the fish to grow. No, Jesus could do it miraculously. And in the same way, this is what he does. He does things miraculously, bringing the dry land apart from the sea. And it's dry land in one day, is what the Bible tells us. And he says, and plant life appeared. Now, some of us wonder, like, how did this plant life appear? The, the plant life appeared at the Word of God, 
and it did not take place over a long million year evolutionary process. It took place in one day at the Word of God is what the Scriptures tell us. And some of you think, well, did it grow on that day? No, it appeared on that day. Notice it says, the plants and the trees appeared, and they had seed in them. They appeared with seed. They did not grow from seed. It's a supernatural, miraculous appearance of stuff by God. Now, in the text here, it's a little misleading in the ESV. Because it says, let the earth sprout. I can find my, my, thing, my finger here. Let the earth sprout vegetation. And we think the word sprout, okay, what means here is it's going to grow from seed. The Hebrew word for sprout literally means to become green. It says, let the earth become green with vegetation. It didn't grow from seed. It miraculously appeared at the word of God with seed. And you'll see why this is very important later as we continue to go through this. And to emphasize, this is all a supernatural thing that takes place in one day. It says, and there was evening and there was morning on the third day. We go to day four. Filling the sky with the sun, the moon, and the stars. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. God puts the lights in the heavens, and He says one of the reasons He does this is for seasons, and for months, and for years. And if you realize this, when we have the sun and the way the earth spins, the sun gives our earth days. The sun also gives our earth years as we actually rotate around the sun. The moon, it's what gives us months because the moons mark off months. Charles Boyle was a scientist, and he was very interested in the works of Kepler and Newton about planetary motion. Charles Boyle, he hired a, a watchmaker to make a living re or a replica of the way the planets rotate uh, around the sun. It was a very detailed, really cool uh, model. And he was showing this model to a friend of his who was an atheist. And his friend said, well, hey, who made this? Because he wanted to get one. To which Charles Boyle said, uh, nobody. <laughs> it just happened. What? I think Charles Boyle made his point. As foolish as saying that this little model happened by chance, it's also foolish to say this entire universe and all the planets happened by chance. They're obviously special creations of God. In fact, what does it say in Psalm 19, verse 1? 
The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky proclaims His handiwork. The more we look at our universe, the more we realize that we're not a bunch of chance, but the entire universe is a special creation at the hands of God. For instance, let's just look at a little bit of our universe. Let's look at our sun and compare our sun to our earth. We have a pretty big earth, at least it looks big to us. Do you know our sun is has a diameter that's 109 times larger than our earth? If you were to take and try and fill the sun, it would take a million earths to fill the sun. That's how big our sun is. In fact, you could say it this way. If the sun is the size of a bowling ball, the earth is the size of a poppy seed. It's a big universe. Now, the other thing to know is astronomers consider our sun, they call it a yellow dwarf. In other words, we have a small one. There are other suns in the universe called supergiants, which are a thousand times larger than our sun. And yet God says He spoke this entire universe into being on day four. I mean, all these planets into being on one day in day four. And to emphasize, this happened in one day. He says that there was evening and there was morning on this day. And I know a number of you are going, this can't be true. But this is the whole point of the, the universe is to help us understand the amazing, awesome power of God. And that He can do this whole place by His simple Word. The reason we sit there and say, well, this can't really have taken place in one day is because we have a small understanding of the power of God. Yet the purpose of the universe is to tell us how incredibly powerful our God is. Not by chance, all by His Word. Day five, the filling the waters with fish and with birds. God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Let the birds fly above the earth and across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. The Bible is very clear. Where do the fish and where do the birds come from? The creative powerful Word of God, not by evolution, not by billions of years, not by chance. Birds and fish are special creations of God. Now, let me just show you just some of these cool things here. For instance, let's look at the amazing archer fish. You can put the archer fish up there. These guys are pretty cool. This fish is found in Southeast Asia. And what they have this unique ability to do is they sort of have this little buck teeth section here where their teeth are apart in the front. And they have a groove on the top of their, the palate. 
And what they can do is they can push their tongue to the top of the palate, close their gills, and squeeze their gills together, and they can shoot a stream of water up to five feet in distance. And what they do is they look for bugs that are hanging over the water where they're at, and they hit the bugs, knock them down, and have them for snacks. The archer fish has binocular vision, so it can judge distance. The archer fish also can compensate for the refraction of the light in the water. The archer fish can shoot with pinpoint accuracy. Now, evolutionists will say, well, the reason the fish developed this over billions of years is because it needed a way to survive. The problem is that the archer fish is a fish, and it doesn't need the ability to shoot bugs out of trees to survive. It can survive just as well in the water. You know why the archer fish shoots down bugs out of trees? For sport. You know, like you like to go hunting? They like to go hunting. So they shoot bugs out of trees. Now, it, it, this didn't happen by chance. This is all the special creation by God. And God created some really cool special creations, didn't he? Look at, you know, listen to National Geographic. If you can just turn off the announcer who keeps saying billions of years, you would sit there being amazed at all the things that God has made. Let me give you a bird that's also amazing. Let's consider the amazing albatross. You know much about those guys? They have the biggest wingspan of any bird that is in existence today, 12 feet across. They will fly sometimes 1,000 miles in one day. They do it not by flapping, but by floating. They learn how to ride air currents. A young albatross can circle the earth seven times before it actually puts down on land. Now, the albatross has this unique ability that it, when it's thirsty, it can drink seawater. And it has the ability to separate the salt out of the water, and the salt comes out special holes in its beak area, and it just drinks the water and just keeps circling the earth. Now, evolutionists will say, well, it developed this ability over billions of years and chances and time. And the problem is the albatross doesn't reproduce that much. It lays one egg about every three years, and it lays it in Antarctica. <laughs> when you look at the albatross and its unique abilities, it's obvious. A special creation of God. And you look at the bird, and you're like, wow, God, you are so creative. It's not a matter of, of chance and happenings. Let's move to day six filling the dry land with beasts and with man. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Let me explain this. Livestock apparently refers to domesticated animals, like cows and sheep and goats. Creeping things refers to things like insects, lizards, and ants. Beasts refers to things like lions and leopards and crocodiles. 
God made everything. And as you look at God's creation and these animals that he made, you can't tell me that it doesn't just scream with God's creativity. Don't tell me it's all evolution and chance. Let me show you some that are very cool. One of my favorite is the basilisk, the amazing basilisk lizard. Put that guy up there. Uh, let me show you him. He's not your typical lizard because when a predator comes, instead of crawling on all fours, he gets up on his hind legs and he runs, just like you and I would. And here's where it gets very cool. What this guy does is he always runs to water because he has a unique ability that the predators don't have. That is, he can walk on water. It's not because he has huge paddles for his feet, but they've studied this. The way his, the fingers on his feet are geometrically engineered, when he presses on water, for a brief second he has a pocket of air which supports him. So he can literally run across water and his predators can't keep up with him. Now, you know, the evolutionists will say, well, this just happened by chance. He happened, one lizard happened to learn how to walk on water. And then all the other lizards that came after him did that. Oh, really? Try throwing your pet lizard in the water. Try, tell me, when is he going to learn to walk on water? It's not going to happen. And once he figures it out, how is he going to tell all of his kids? And obviously, the basilisk lizard is an amazing creation of God. And he's genetically programmed him with this ability and the special webbing or the special design of his feet so he can walk on water. Isn't God amazing? I'll give you another one. This is called the Bombardier Beetle. Some of you guys have seen this. I talked about him a, a couple of years ago. Uh, he's found in the deserts of New Mexico. And he has two interesting chambers in his body. One chamber produces hydrogen peroxide. The other chamber produces hydroquinine. Now, both of these substances are normally, like, harmless until you mix them together. You mix them together, and they explode. And they explode, and what comes out when they mix is something as hot as boiling water. This beetle has a special, not only does he have these chambers in his body, but he has a special turret on his back where he can point it in any direction he wants. And he has the ability to take and to mix these chemicals in the turret, and it, they combine just after it leaves the turret, exploding. So when a predator goes after him, he shoots this scalding, noxious liquid that explodes in their face. It's a pretty cool beetle, I think. Now think about this from an evolutionary cycle perspective. You just randomly happen to have some beetles that start developing chambers of hydrogen peroxide and hydrogen quinine randomly together in the body. But if it mixes, what happens to the beetle? Poof! He explodes. So that sort of ends your whole evolutionary cycle right there. Now he just randomly by chance has these two chemicals in chambers in his body and he randomly by chance starts to develop a very sophisticated turret mechanism to mix them. But if he gets it wrong just once, what happens? Poof! So like that really cuts off the whole evolutionary cycle, doesn't it? This beetle just screams about God's creativity. Because anytime anything goes wrong, he explodes. 
But it doesn't go wrong because he's a specially crafted beetle by the very hand of God that screams of God's creativity and God's genius. Now, let's go ahead and look at the creation of man. Then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, and you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. For the first time, we find that God is not just in the singular. God is in the plural. Let us make man in our image. And if you've been around the church for any length of time, you know as you continue to go through Scriptures, you find there is God the Father and God the Son and, and, and God the Holy Spirit. And it's here that we just find this beginning to be unfolded, the very beginning of creation. But what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Because that's what man is. Now, some people think that man being made in the image of God describes us physically. I don't think that's what it means. There are apes that look like us. Apes are not made in the image of God. So I don't think this is talking about us physically. I think this is talking about us spiritually and relationally. Because we are the like, only being out there that really understands God and that really wants to worship God and is designed for a relationship with God. We're also designed for deep and intimate relationships with one another. I think this is part of what it means to be made in the image of God. Also, notice that all of creation at this point has pre been prepared for us. We are to rule and have dominion over it. We are, to, we are told by God to use the earth. We are told by God to steward the earth. You know, is, the earth is given for us to be able to use for God's glory. And at this point, it's very clear, every single thing upon the planet is a special creation of God. Nothing has evolved. Nothing has happened by chance. Nothing. It's been six evenings and mornings, six days. Now let's have some fun. I want to answer for you the age-old question. What came first, the chicken or the egg? 
Now, I'm going to tell you, if you didn't notice it, Genesis chapter 1 answered the question. The chicken. And here's why. Notice the plants became, they came about fully formed. And they had seed in them. This means that right after a guy like spoke an oak tree into creation, if you were to look at that tree, it would have rings in it and have the appearance of age, even though it was only moments old. The same thing holds true with the animals. The animals were created as adults. They were created with the ability to multiply. And by the way, that usually means you're mature, fully mature, to have the ability to multiply. Adam and Eve, if we were to look at them moments after they, were, after they were created, we would probably think they're in their 20s. When the reality is they weren't in their 20s. They were only moments old. They had the appearance of age. And God created them fully formed with language skills so they could talk with each other. God created them fully formed with intelligence and maturity. So my point is, God can create this universe in six literal days, and He can even create it with the appearance of being much older. There is no problem with that. John chapter 2, Jesus turned the water into wine. He completely bypassed the lengthy fermentation process, right? No big deal to compress the time. Some of you will look and you'll see in astronomy, they say, well, the light from this planet is so far away from us. The light has been traveling for millions of years to get to us. Now, I don't know if that's right or wrong, but I can tell you this. If it's right, on day four, when God created the planets and He spoke them into existence, He also created the light from the planet that was traveling from it en route. He created it with the appearance of age. Adam and Eve had the appearance of age. The plants and animals had the appearance of age. It's no problem. You just have to go with what God's Word said. If we believe that Jesus rose from the dead, if we believe there is a new heavens and a new earth coming, which God will bring about as a special creation, we have no problem believing that God literally created this earth in six literal days. Day seven, rest. Let's read it. Thus the heavens and earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished His work that He had done. And He rested on the seventh day from all of His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all the work that He had done in creation. I want you to notice something. Four times in three verses, God said creation is done. He's not creating anything new anymore. Nothing is being created. Nothing is continuing to evolve. If you go to, you go to high school, they're going to teach you something called uniform, uniformitarianism. Did you get it right, Dave? Is that I pronounced it right? Okay. Uniformitarianism means that what's happening is everything is continuing to slowly change and slowly evolve, and someday, like, the apes are going to become as smart as you and me, and they're all going to be sitting in church, you know? The Bible says uniformitarianism isn't true. 
Because God finished all of his creation in six days, done. Nothing's changing. What the Bible teaches is something called catastrophism. Let me explain what catastrophism is. Catastrophism is, means that nothing is changing except for two catastrophic events. The first catastrophic world-changing event was creation itself, where God took this blob, formed it into a circle, and in six days created everything we have. That sounds like a big event. The second catastrophic event would be the flood where God took and completely like hit the reset button like you would on your computer, like rebooted the place, except for Noah and the animals on the ark. Interestingly, catastrophism explains the fossils. Remember the fossils in the geologic ages? Because like you go hunting. So you guys are out hunting. You shoot a deer. Okay, does the body on that deer, if you leave it there, does it fossilize? No. It decays because you need specific conditions for an animal body to turn into a fossil. What you need is rapid burial, number one, and two, you need massive amounts of pressure. What would produce rapid burial and massive amounts of pressure? A worldwide flood. Otherwise, things just decay. Like, for instance, if you go to the, if I can pronounce this properly, the Karoo, um, in Karoo, Africa, they have fossil beds. These are areas where all kinds of animals have turned into fossils. In fact, they estimate there are 80 billion animals in the Karoo fossil bed. What would have caused this? Other than a massive global flood, animals, as the water were coming, were finding themselves circled into one area and then massively all at once buried and tons of hydraulic pressure on top. That's what the Scriptures tell us. Why did God do this creation in six days? You know, He could have done it all at once, snapped His fingers. But here's what we learn. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, and He rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Here's the reason God took six days of work and one day of rest. To give us a pattern to follow. Because if God worked seven days a week, trust me, we would work seven days a week. He says, six days on, one day off. That's the way I did it. That's the way you do it. So how do we respond? I have three things I want to put into you here. Number one, remember this. Remember that evolution is a theory, not a fact. It's a theory. <laughs> it's not a repeatable event in a laboratory. It's a guess as to how some scientists think things may have happened. And only give it that weight. Number two, remember that creation is a gift from God. Thank Him for it and enjoy it. Environmentalists will tell you, you know, don't ever use creation or don't enjoy creation. Like the PETA guys will be like, don't you dare eat a hamburger. I'm like, no, eat a hamburger to the glory of God. Enjoy sitting on a leather couch. You know what I mean? Have a glass of milk. It's okay. And when you do it, give thanks to God for His creation. 
1 Timothy 6.17 says, As for the men in the present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Isn't that what God has done with creation? Who's richly provided us a great creation with everything to enjoy. And lastly is this. Let the magnificence of God's creation develop within us an attitude of humility and worship. When you look at creation and you see things like the Bombardier beetle or the basilisk lizard, doesn't it just fill you with awe that God would make it? When you look to the heavens and you see the vast size of the universe, doesn't it just fill you with awe that God made the whole thing in one day simply by speaking His Word? That God is much greater than we ever could have imagined much more powerful than we could ever comprehend. But you know what is even cooler? This same God who spoke this entire creation into existence in six days loves you and He loves me. And He loves us so much that He did the only thing that could be done to save us from our sin and separation from Him. He sent His own Son to join Himself with human flesh, to die in our place for our sin out of love for us. That is even more amazing than the wonders of creation. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank You. We thank You that for being so worthy of worship and so worthy of praise. Thank You so much for Your creation. And I ask that You would help us as we look at your creation to just be filled with wonder and awe and worship and praise. We ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand and praise the Lord with us as we want to give him our worship and our praise for creating the world and for sending Jesus as the way for us to know God. We want to declare that this morning together.
Father, as we look at your awesome creation, all of its beauty and wonder and power in the sky and the vastness of the universe, I pray it drives us to worship you. Help us to understand even more your incredible might and power to bring this all about in six days by your mere word. And may we be filled with even more wonder and awe and worship. We think about your incredible love and grace to us through your own Son. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us. And may God continue to enrich your life.